All right, good morning, everybody. All right, in case uh, you guys don't know me, my name's Eli, and uh, my wife and I, we lead the youth and family ministry. Um, so, so last, uh, we're, we're going through a series on, on knowing God. And, and the reason we're doing this series is because we believe that knowing God is the most important thing that we can do with our life on this earth. And last week we talked about knowing God's work, okay, knowing how he works. And one of the things that we talked about was just the little things that we do. We do these tiny little things and God makes absolute miracles out of them. He, he turns it into something that could never be without that, the, the miracle, the power, the help of God. And I want to make a shout out because... You know, nothing makes a preacher more happy than when the people just go and immediately apply what he preached, okay? And so, two of the teens, Chase and Kale, they, uh, they, they applied the message with great eagerness last week. They went out uh, into the woods and they dug a giant hole, because we, we talked about digging ditches, digging ditches. So they went and they dug a ditch. And, you know, that's, that's awesome zeal. I appreciate that. You know, the one thing that kind of confuses me about it, though, is that it's like, obviously that's not exactly what I meant, but why is that the only thing that you guys have ever done that I've asked you to do? <laughs> is dig a ditch. Why? It's a joke. They're, they're, they're very, they're awesome. Awesome teens, awesome students. I love them. So, uh, this week, we're going to be talking about knowing God's nearness and treasuring his presence. Okay, and uh, I want to tackle this because knowing God's nearness is, is actually, it, it can be kind of confusing because God is, well, he's so holy. He's so big. He's so mighty. And how, and he, you know, he, he lives in another dimension. His, his physical dwelling is not in this dimension. And so, like, how, how can God be so near? And here, it's definitely not a perfect analogy, but it, it's a little bit like this. If you think of, of the sun, right? The sun, when you look up in the sky, it's, it's like it's right there. Like, if you look at it, it burns your eyes, right? It's right there. But really, that thing is, is 93 million miles away, right? But it's right there. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah uh, 55 that the, God's ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We, we're just not on his level, is, is the modern day translation of that. And in, 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 I'm going to just start things off today. I'm going to just b- scramble your brain right now. There is nothing in all of creation that is more similar to us than God. Okay? So you got, I know this isn't perfect because God's not part of the creation. He's the creator, but for the, for the purpose of this analogy, there's nothing more similar in all of creation, to us, than God, because God made us in his image. And at the same time, there's nothing more different in all of creation from us than God. Because that's, that's the breadth, the scope of God. You know, I wanted to talk about this a little bit, because I've observed in general, I, I, I've, people's most peaceful moments. What is, what is your most peaceful moment that you've ever experienced? And a lot of times, just what I hear is something, you know, not every time, but something along the lines of when people are alone and they're typically like in nature, like they're by a river or they're on a mountain. 
And suddenly it just, it's, it's peaceful. It just makes sense. And I believe, and this, I'm talking about people too who know not, they don't have a relationship with God. They're not even looking, you know, they might not even be interested in a relationship with God, anything like that. But I believe that's because that's how near God is, that when we, when we get away, when the distractions are quieted and we get out in his creation, it's like all of a sudden God is near. And there's this peace. God's nearness and his presence are, are amazing. And we're going to talk about that today. So God is near. And, and he's near no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done. There, he's, he's near to you, regardless of those things. And that the presence of God is more satisfying, it's more delightful, it's more pleasant, it's more gratifying than anything this world has to offer. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So last week, uh, we're actually going to skip kind of a big chunk of the book of 2 Kings, which I'm a little bummed about, because uh, there's, there's, it's, it's awesome, there's so much going on, but I felt like we needed to talk about this. So we ended with uh, Samaria, the capital of Israel, being besieged by the nation of Syria. And uh, ultimately what ends up happening, so that was in 2 Kings 7, and we're going to be skipping all the way to 2 Kings 18. Okay, so kind of just a few things that have happened in this time period is that Israel, Samaria, has been captured by the nation of Assyria. Okay, It it is not, it is not under, they're not an independent nation anymore. They are ruled by Assyria. And Elisha the prophet has passed. Um, and then we come to this point now where we're going to be at now in 2 Kings is that Judah, the southern kingdom, is about to be captured. Uh, they've, they've hung on for about 200 extra years uh, resisting Assyria, okay, because they're a very powerful nation. And it's honestly, it's just an absolute bloodbath during this time. Like, there's like this span of like five years, right? Because it just, Kings is telling you all about all the kings in Israel and Judah. And like, there's this king who reigns for three months and then somebody, they assassinate him. And then a king who reigns for literally a week and they assassinate him. And the guy after that's a month and they assassinate him. It's just, it's a bloodbath of fighting and scrambling for power. And so it's, it's not good. It's, it's, it's very, it's very negative. It's, it's the Bible laying out how, how to not do things, right? The Bible is, has a lot, I don't, I don't know what, what, where there's more of in the Bible, of how to live or how not to live, but there's a lot of each, okay? And so that's, that's kind of where we are in history. And so and we're gonna, now we're going to talk about uh, King Hezekiah. So we've made it to the reign of King Hezekiah. And let's read a little bit about King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. It says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord, did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. All right, so this is good. This is good news. King Hezekiah has got his act together. And it's actually pretty incredible that he does not serve the king of Assyria because there is so much pressure. And so often we've seen in the history of God's people that they, one of the things they tend to do is they make alliances with surrounding nations trying to protect themselves against a powerful nation like Assyria. So he's, he's resisted that. He's saying, we're going to trust in God. And then there's this scene where Assyria, the armies of Assyria, they come up to Judah 
And they're like, look, we are going to destroy you. Like, think about all these other nations, right, that, that, have, that used to populate this land, and we have destroyed them all. And what about their gods, right? Dagon, Baal, all the other. What about that? We've destroyed every one of them, and you think your God is going to deliver you from us? And, and the, the Assyrians, they tell the soldiers of Judah, don't let King Hezekiah tell you to trust in God, because we will destroy you. And there's actually, there's good in that. I, I love how the Assyrians recognize that Hezekiah, that's what he's going to tell them. He's going to say, no, don't listen. Trust, trust in God. That, they have a good king in Judah. So Assyria is talking some serious trash. I mean, just God, he's not going to deliver you. We're going we're gonna to make him look like the gods of all these other nations. So we'll see what happens. Okay, so we're going to... Um, okay, actually, what ends up happening is shortly after this, God... He extends, so Judah is ultimately captured by Assyria, but he extends uh, their freedom by sending an angel that wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night. So then the Assyrian army is like, we're out of here, okay? And they end up coming back later. So we're going to look now at another incident in Hezekiah's life. In chapter, this is in chapter 20, okay, verse 20. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went, and, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and wholehearted, with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer, and I've seen your tears, and I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. So, how did Hezekiah? Okay, when you a lot, of, I've heard I've heard a lot of stories about when people go to the doctor and the doctor gives them a diagnosis and it's not good, right? It's like you'll never walk again, or you're surely going to die because of this illness. And you know, there's so many inspirational stories of how that the person who gets that diagnosis does exactly what the doctor tells them they're never going to do again. And why is that? That's because doctors can be wrong, right? So a prophet of the Lord comes to you and says, you are surely going to die. There's not much hope that the diagnosis is, is not correct. Okay, so just imagine hearing that from God. You are surely going to die. And well, the, the helplessness that you might feel. And... So how does Hezekiah change God's mind? He prays, and God, I mean, immediately, I mean, Isaiah hasn't even, like, left the premises, and he's like, oh, word from the Lord, go back, tell Hezekiah, actually, here's 15 more years. I thought God couldn't change. Like, what's going on here? And so I wanted to just, just take a quick second to tackle this issue of, of uh, does how, like, does God change or not? And so I think this does a good job. So I am from Michigan. And I grew up being a Detroit Pistons fan, okay? And 
Honestly, the Pistons stink. And I've been living in Wisconsin for about five, a little over five years. And I'm kind of starting to become a Bucks fan. You know, I, the, the Bucks, they're, they're better, so that, that helps. And they got Giannis, who's just a, a, an a cr incredible athlete. So it's like, I like what they got going on. I'm kind of becoming a Bucks fan. So my mind has changed, but has, has my DNA, has my genetic makeup changed? Am I a different person? Because my mind has changed about what team I root for. No. And that's how, that's how God's able to change his mind. He can change his mind about things, but it doesn't all of a sudden mean that his character or his DNA has somehow changed. And if you got your hopes up, I will never root for the Packers or the Vikings. <laughs> never. Okay? The Vikings, Kirk Cousins, please. That's just pathetic. And the real number 12, he plays up in Foxborough. Okay. We're going to move on. So in Hezekiah's sickness, he, he just, he prays. In his, in his desperateness, he prays. And God immediately responds to him. And so this is just, this is a picture of the nearness of God. Because God, he hears Hezekiah and he sees his tears. Like, it's like God is in the room with him. Like, how did you see his tears? Right? And I think, the, the, so part of the difficult part about this is that God doesn't always respond this way, though. Right? I, I have, I'm sure many of you, you have, have had prayers, petitions to God that, that didn't really go like this. It wasn't just this immediate thing, right? And so that, that, that can be a challenge when it comes to being aware and understanding how near God really is. And there's this concept that I want to share with you, that joy, true joy, is not the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. And here's what I mean. You know, the world wants you to believe that if all the hardship, all the struggle in your life were fixed, if it were taken away, that you would experience true joy. Then everything would be good. But, that, but that's not true. Like, we, we, we know that's not true. I don't, you know, how many examples would I have to bring up of someone who looks like they have the good life, the perfect life, money, riches, every, you know, everything, and it turns out that they're, that they're not happy and that they, you know, they get themselves into trouble because of their unhappiness. See, in the presence of God, there is true, true joy regardless of the amount of suffering. I wanna, we're going to do something different. Okay? We're going we're gonna to play a little game of imagination. And for in order for this to work, I need you, even though it's maybe going to be a little weird, a little awkward, I need you to just put your whole heart into it and do it, okay? So we're going to play some imagination. Everyone, if you could just please close your eyes. And I want you to imagine being in heaven. Okay, so whatever, just imagine that. So you're in heaven. And then I want you to go to... Go into the throne room of God. In the train of his robe, it fills the entire thing. And I want you to approach the throne. I, I know it, it might seem like it's not okay to be, right now it's safe. All right, you're right by the throne of God. You're in his presence. 
And I want you to, now I want you to look, keep your eyes closed, look back at your life down on earth and the thing, the struggle, the hardship, the biggest obstacle in your life at this moment. How big, how threatening is it now when you're in the presence of God? You can open up your eyes. The, in, the presence of God, it changes everything. It changes our perspective. You know, we, we have, we, 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 can, we can fathom that. We have this great biblical example in Acts chapter 5 of how the presence of God can change everything. The apostles, right, they're sharing the faith and they were flogged right there. It says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So if you don't know what flogging is, it's that scene, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, that scene where Jesus is being whipped and he's just beaten within inches of his life. That's what it is to be flogged. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. No amount of suffering, right? The presence of God is joy regardless of the amount of suffering. And these guys have been beaten within an inch of their lives. And you know what they do? Not only are they rejoicing, but then they just they don't stop doing what they were just beaten for because it's not right for them to stop. Jesus promised them that he would always be with them. In Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And they believed that. And so they were able, despite their suffering, to be in the presence of God. Pursue the presence of God. So, so often... Uh, we are in, in music and in, in Hollywood and just and we're, we're kind of taught to chase the, the feeling, chase, chase the highs of different experiences in life. Don't, don't, don't chase that. Chase the presence. Pursue the presence of God. You know, this is from Genesis 15.1 when God is talking to Abraham. And he says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but like, why are you trying to do the Christian thing? Like, why are you trying to walk in obedience to God, carry your cross, deny yourself? Why are you trying to do that? What are you working towards? What are you building towards? And the reality is, is that what you are building towards is the reward. And the reward is the presence of God. I don't, know what, I don't know what maybe you were hoping it was, or what you thought it was, or what blessing it might be, but it's none of those things. The great reward is the presence of God. And if you don't understand that, if you don't get that, you're going to be frustrated for a long time till you get it. All right, we're going to look at another incredible example. This, this blows my mind of God's nearness in 2 Kings 21. So we're, we're moving past Hezekiah. Now we're moving to the reign of Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. 
Uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years, the longest reign of any king in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Also, he erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved astropole he made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In his temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray, and so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. And I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of of their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood, he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so the tables have turned a little bit. We get Hezekiah. He's a man of character. And his son clearly is not. And the interesting thing, if you read through the book of Kings, every king is typically evaluated based on like the previous king or their, you know, their father, David, who was kind of the ideal king. And he's not even compared to them. He's compared to the nations that Israel, that God drove out before Israel ever, ever inhabited the promised land. And he's also compared with Ahab, who's known as the worst king in Israel. So that, that's, that's where Manasseh is being compared with. Imagine this. He set, so they have the temple of God. He set up altars to these false gods inside the temple. Like at this point, there's, literally, there's like almost, if you actually go into the temple to worship God at this point, there's like nowhere for you to worship. There's just like, okay, a bunch of people are worshiping, you know, Asherah, and a bunch of people worshiping Baal, and like, can I please worship God? This is his temple? He, sac- he sacrificed, he killed his own son as an offering to a false god. He shed so much blood that Jerusalem was filled from end to end 
I don't know about you guys, but if Manasseh walked through that door right now, I would want to drop kick him in the face. Because, are you kidding me? That's what you did as king? You know, in Jewish tradition, Manasseh is held responsible for the death of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was put to death by being sawed in two. And, you know, when we think of being sawed in two, a lot of times we think of the, you know, that magic trick, the illusion, where, you know, someone's like laying down and they like pull them apart in the middle. That's not cruel enough. That's not how they did it. They would saw in two this way. But that's not cruel enough, because if you start here, you'll die really fast, because that's where your brain is. So they start between the legs, and they go up. And you know, that's not cruel enough, because if you do it that way, you'll bleed out quickly. So they hang you upside down by your legs, and they start in the middle, and they saw you through. That's how Isaiah died. That's the level of evil that we're the malevolence that we're talking about with Manasseh. So, Kings kind of just, the book of 2 Kings just leaves us here, but the book of Chronicles gives us more details about Manasseh's, the end of Manasseh's life. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 33. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, and bound him with brown shackles and took him to Babylon. Awesome! That's exactly what this guy deserves. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Guys, Manasseh goes on to completely rebuild every, everything that he had destroyed, tear down everything that he had built, and, and redoes it for the last 15 years of his life. So a lot of times I hear people they, they struggle to get near, to struggle to feel God's nearness because of what's happened to them or what they've done. And a lot of times that's, especially in the case of what's happened to us, a lot of times that's trauma that's surfacing and telling us that, you know, we're, we're stained or we're tainted or somehow there's just something wrong with us and God can never be near to us. Or it's just our own sin and what we've done. Have you ever sawed someone in two? Have you ever shed innocent, just multitudes of innocent blood? Have you sacrificed one of your children to a false god? You can be near to God. He can be near to too. He, he, it just took a little humility on the part of Manasseh, and he hears his entreaty, and God is moved in his heart. And that's, that's, see, that's, that's the heart of it. This is knowing God. This is, we get to see the heart of God and what makes it move. 
And it's, it's some humility. It's realizing that, man, you know what? My way is not the best way. Maybe your way is, God. So no matter what you've done or what's happened to you, God wants to be near you. You know, if you are in the position where you, you, don't, you haven't made Jesus Lord of your life and been baptized into him, I want you to look at this verse. It says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Every, every event, every happening, the place where you're born, the people in your family, right? God, God did this so that perhaps you might reach out to him and find him. He's not actually far from you. And so God has been speaking to you in all these different ways, through all these different things in your life. And then what needs to happen is, if you want to hear what God is saying clearly, then you need to open the Bible and study the Bible and ask for help. And someone will help you to see what God is clearly saying to you. There, there, there is no, nothing when it all comes down to it, that can keep you from the presence of God. For those of you who have made Jesus Lord, this verse in 1 Peter, be encouraged by this verse. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Guys, we're a royal, the people of Christ are a royal priesthood. And, and that's, that has a, there's a specific reason why. Priests are the people who work the most closely with the presence of God. The king, anybody else, they, they, they were not allowed into the presence of God. But now, through the death of Jesus, we are the people who get to be the closest to the presence of God. Even when you feel, when your emotions are telling you, your thoughts are telling you that you can't be near to God, that he's not near you, combat it with this truth. You know, Jesus makes this interesting statement in Matthew 6. He says that the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, and you know, this, is, this, is, this is an interesting statement that Jesus makes. And really how we unlock, I think what Jesus is really talking about here is we look at the context of what he's saying. So we find this statement of Jesus between these two teachings in the Bible. And they're both teachings about what we treasure. Do we treasure, right? Don't store up for yourself treasure on earth, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven, and then, right and then where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And then there at the bottom, that no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, this, this word where it says that your, uh, 
The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, that, that word literally is, it would mean single. So if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. And so what, what, is, what does that mean, if, you're, if your eye is single? Well, I think if we look above and below, it's that if we're single-minded, if our eye is focused on one thing, if it desires one thing, and that one thing is, is the treasure, it's the presence of God. The good eye is a discerning eye, a treasuring eye, one that does not, that when it sees God, it sees God as beautiful, as desirable. This is why the good eye leads to the way of light, laying up treasures in heaven and serving God, not money. The good eye is a single eye. It has one treasure, and that's God. And when this happens in your, in your life, you are full of light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we treasure God, when we treasure God's presence as our, as, as it's the end. It is the reward. It's our, our single focus, the single thing that we desire. We have this as a blessing that we get to, our, we're full of light. We get to walk in the light and we get the blessing of fellowship with one another. We can connect with our brothers and sisters on a truly spiritual, deep, fulfilling level. And then purification from all sin. Man, when we're purified from all sin, then we can go into the presence of God with no fear. So guys, walking away from today's lesson, to, to know God's nearness and to treasure his presence. Draw near to God with a true heart. That's a principle from Hebrews 10.22. Draw near to God with a true heart. Not, not a heart that says, you know God, I really want a blessing. I really want what, what do you have to give me, God? Or I really want you and then a little extra something. No, walk, come to God with a true heart. Come to God to just to know him for him, not for anything else. Draw near to God with a true heart. Get rid of distractions. Okay? You guys remember the story of Elijah when he was at uh, Mount Hebron and God showed up and, he, and there was like this fire and there was this earthquake and this wind and then God wasn't there. God was in the sound of a low whisper. We'll never hear that voice if our light, if we're full, if you sit, like, sit, let's say 16 hours of your day are, uh, you know, it's text messages, it's notifications, it's music, it's, it's radio, it's YouTube, it's, it's the computer. And, you know, you, you get about, let's say you squeeze about 20 minutes of the Word of God into that day. What voice are you going to hear? We need to get rid of distractions. Like, I'm, I, every, I say something about this every time I come up here because I'm serious about this whole just constantly being plugged in thing. It is, it, we cannot hear the low whisper of God when we're constantly consumed with the worries of this life and what's going on. It really is. It's, it's, it's not an evil thing, but man, it, I, I, do, I do fear its consequences. 
And lastly, to be on the mission. So that, to, to, to know the nearness of God and to treasure his presence, we need to be on the mission, right? Jesus, when he made that promise, I'll be with you always, even till the end of the age, that was, when, that was in the middle of the Great Commission. And he's telling the disciples to go make disciples. You know, that's, when we're on the mission, that's when God makes his presence known. Okay, so, Eli, like that situation we just talked about Elijah, he was running for his life because he just confronted the prophets of Baal. Right, Daniel, when he's in the lion's den, and God's presence shows up, he was standing for his faith, he was being persecuted by the government, and he was standing up for his faith, and God showed up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing up for their faith. They will not kneel to Nebuchadnezzar, and God's presence shows up in the furnace that they're thrown into. It's in the, that's when God's presence... God's presence isn't just going to show up in your basement when you're watching Netflix. We have to be on the mission. You might see God's presence, you might hear about God's presence, but you'll never experience it if your life's not devoted to the mission. You know, in regards to being on the mission, one thing that consumes people here in America is the American dream. And the American dream is such that it's basically an attempt to have everything in our life so under control that there's absolutely no need for God. We have enough money in every single one of our accounts so that if something horrible happens, guess what? We don't need God. We have enough money. You guys know what I'm getting at. Maybe that, maybe that shouldn't be the dream. Maybe we shouldn't set our lives up in such a way that there's no need for God. You know, it's so the times that I've stretched myself, that I've given more than I thought I'd give, that, those are the times that God has just shown up in my life. Guys, no matter what God, or excuse me, no matter what you've done, no matter what has happened to you, God is near to you. And the presence of God is more satisfying, delightful, pleasant to the soul than anything else. So as we go into communion, I want us to, to really treasure this moment with Jesus. This is what we're remembering. Communion is all about remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it, it, it's, hopefully it's our greatest treasure. It's the thing that we're mo- more thankful for than anything else, truly, at the bottom of our hearts. So go ahead and bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, God, um, just thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that, that right now we would just be completely satisfied in this moment with meditating on your son and his work. God, and his work is finished. God, the, 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 the miracles, the power in your son Jesus are indescribable, God, and, and incomprehensible, God. I just I pray that we would, we would bask and stand in awe of, of your glory and of the, the true love, God, that's in the blood that, that runs down um, 
from the face of Jesus. Uh, we, we love you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.